Alright folks, welcome to the Smart Ass Historian. I am as always the Great White Snark Scotty J. See the next to me is the Reverend Jeff. How's it going? Oh dude, we survived the holidays. No shit. Another one in the books. Another one in the books. We're in a new decade. <laughs> We're in... starting a war off with the decade. <laughs> new decade, new war. Same old region. Right, but the Same funny old region, different war, different. Decade. The the funny thing is, I, I was looking. We've already been at war for twenty years. Now we're going to go in for another twenty years. Well, I was looking at. Uh, I was online this morning before I came over, and uh, you know th their leaders are like, "No, we're not at war with the country. We're at war with your president." <laughs> and I'm like, I can I can understand that. It's fucking weird. Uh, like, just like Bush made up the bullshit to get into Iraq, it's like, now we're doing the same thing to get into Iran. You know, if I was a president, I'd stand up there with my, my, my Boats and Hose t-shirt giving, giving a press conference to me like, you know what? I don't feel like fighting anybody that, during no, my term. I'm sorry to start off all political or whatever. Well, I mean, it's not really political. Well, no, I mean... I just... Well... We've already been in 20 years of war, and now we're going to go for another 20 years. George Carlin said it best, and... It's like we don't... It, it goes along with we don't learn from our... We don't learn right. from history. We're doomed to repeat it, and we're fucking repeating it. Well, like I said, George Carlin said it best. We're a warlike nation. <laughs> we average a war about every 20 years. Give or take. We haven't even ended the first war that no. got started. no. You mean another war every 20 years? Yeah. Because we had Vietnam. You well, know, well then, Vietnam just kind of... And 20 years later, we had Desert Storm. Yeah. And then so we, we just less keep, than 10 years later, we had we Iraq. Just, we, we started... I remember the... Betty goes, do you remember any white people we fought? The Germans. Why? Because they're trying to cut in our action. Yeah. We're trying to take over all... That's our job. Yeah. Oh, uh, no, I I did good. I kind of chilled out. I actually started the new year off with a job. That's good. Yeah. You well, always use another one of them. Well, right, because I've given myself the, uh, I've given, given myself the, uh, the target month of July to be out of Illinois. Hmm. I, I. July? July. And which is nice because af from what I found out, like after, uh, which would be about my six months there, six months after working at Walmart, I can transfer. That's cool. Yeah. So I just got to go out to Philadelphia, find a Walmart that I want to transfer to, write down the store number, take it back to my boss, and be like, uh, this is the one I'm kind of looking at. <laughs> so. You could look the. Oh yeah, I could. I could get the store number. Yeah, but I want to go. I just want to get out for a while and go to Philly. Hmm. You know, get a cheesesteak. Oh yeah, go to one of those ones that were on like the Travel Channel shows. Uh, or something. Actually, Monica took me to one that's like a little neighborhood hole in the wall. Mm -hmm. It's not far from her house, and I mean seriously, you walk in. There's the counter. Yeah, I bet you. And you can see the grill. No shortage of Philly cheesesteak places. No, there's not. But there's like two that are like really famous. But 
they kind of lost their edge a little bit because they're famous for their mm-hmm. cheesesteaks. Like, unlike Portillo's, which is known for its Italian beef, Portillo's still puts out a good Italian beef. Yeah. Yeah, but you'd think it would taste the same every time. Well, some places do it different, you know. You no, know, I'm talking about the Philly cheesesteaks. Oh, yeah, some people do it different. I mean, the one I had was, oh, God, it was... I don't like the white cheese. I want the whiz, I want the yellow cheese. Oh, you would put, the like, American whiz. on it? No, the cheese whiz. Whatever, though. Okay, I had it with mozzarella, and it was pretty good. saltier. It, it adds to the... Yeah, I, I got to watch my salt and everything, so I... Yeah. Well, but, it's not that salty, I'm just saying. Right, but she took us to a... Took us to this little hole-in-the-wall place. You know, you walked in, and not even five feet from the door was the counter... And there was a cooler next to it that had Coke in it. Mm-hmm. There was a little dining area. You could see the grill. And I love places like that mm-hmm. where you could walk in and see oh, the yeah. grill. And you I, throw your shit on the grill and you just you you smell can, it. Right. I love places like that. You know, that's why I think that's why I love White Castles. I can watch them cooking my meat, my food. Another place is good, like Poor Boys. Oh, yeah. That's a good yeah. place to eat. But we got a good show lined up for you today. Um,. I actually read the book on this when I took my World History 1500 till now course in college. It basically dealt with how, with Belgian and the Congo. Mm-hmm. You thought we were you thought we were bad with slavery? King Leopold had we have nothing on King oh, Leopold. Oh yeah, we're not the first ones to come up with slavery. No, but King Leopold took it to a whole nother level. And the thing is, is by time. King Leopold decided that Belgian should get into the colony business. All the good places were already taken. So he looked to Africa because Africa was the last place for European colonization. Makes sense. Well, right. But when we think of Africa, you know, the Sahara separates the two parts, you know, upper Africa and lower Africa. And everyone along the Mediterranean, Europe had dealt with them for centuries, so they knew them. Yeah. Sub-Saharan Africa was still a mystery to us. Mm-hmm. Well, except, like, India and China had traded with, you know, the eastern parts of Africa for centuries. Yeah. But how they discovered the Congo was... And Africa's as a whole is, like pretty dangerous. Yeah. Oh, yeah, once <laughs> you start animals, getting into the interior, the, yeah. The animals make it kind of difficult. Well, right. Once and you start the, getting into the, the interior. The tribes and, you know, it's just like, come on. It's like, uh, we're going to stay along the coast because you get too far in there, it's fucking crazy. <laughs> but how they discovered, there was a Portuguese sailor, I forget the guy's name, who discovered, like he was sailing around the, uh, the western side of Africa, the, the big hump part. That kind of fits with South America. Oh, the divot. Yeah. He, he came around there, and he saw this part of the water which was like real murky looking. Well, the Congo River was actually exit emptying into the Atlantic Ocean. And where salt water and fresh water meet, it forms like this brackish... Yeah, yeah brackish water. Yeah. And that's how he discovered the Congo River. Hmm. And sailed up it. Of course, he was looking for gold, and the African kings had gold, but they're like, we also have slaves. Yeah. So, we had to read the book. Um, We had to read the book for class, and uh, there was a famous... 
one of the guys in the book became famous later on, and once I get to his name, you'll probably recognize it. Yeah. So even before his accession to the throne, the Belgian throne, that is, in 1865, the future King Leopold II began lobbying leading Belgian politicians to create a colonial empire in the Far East or Africa, which would expand and enhance Belgian prestige. Everyone else in Europe's gotten colonies. Why can't we? Yeah, no shit. <laughs> this is the thing that I always find funny about European colonization. It's like, well, England has one. Why can't we have one? Yeah. Well, England and France? Well, <laughs> they start adding countries. They're like, well, they got colonies. Why can't we? Yeah. Now, politically, however, colonization was unpopular in Belgium as it was perceived as a risky and expensive gamble with no obvious benefit to the country and as many attempts to persuade politicians met with little success. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody wants to be, you know, no one wants to be a colonial power. I mean, America really didn't want to be one, but we ended up being one. Well, the founders didn't. It was the later generations. Now, determined to look for a colony for himself and inspired by recent reports from Central Africa, Leopold began patronizing a number of leading explorers, including Henry Morton Stanley. Hmm. Dr. Livingston, I presume? Yeah. Yeah, Henry Morton Stanley. He was uh, he, he went to Africa looking for Dr. Livingston. Mm. Also found out he fought in our Civil War. Huh. Now, Leopold established the International African Association, a charitable organization to oversee the exploration and surveying of a territory based around the Congo River with the stated goal of bringing humanitarian assistance and, we're going to put this in air quotes, Yeah. Civilization yeah. to the natives. In the Berlin Conference of 1884 and 85, European leaders officially recognized Leopold's control over the 2,350,000 square miles. Uh, actually, it was kilometer square, but it averaged out to 109,000 square miles. All right, 910,000, sorry. <laughs> The fucking chicken salad for dinner last night's fucking with me. Chicken. You mean not chicken salad, but salad with grilled salad chicken with grilled on chicken. it. Did you at least get like a bre- a piece of breast meat nope. size oh, no, amount she, of chicken? Oh, she put it on the George Foreman grill, then cut it up. Well, I mean... It, it, they could have been breast tenderloins. Well, I'm just saying, like, did she, like, say, okay, well, say this piece of chicken breast is Scott's. I'm going to cut this one up and put this whole one on his... Or no, she she, she cut it up and then she sprinkled, she sprinkled it. she the chicken? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. What I, a monster. I know, and I eat... That's fucking... I'm serious, dude. Like, if you're going to do that, like, make salads for everybody, for, then you make a big old bowl of salad... And everybody gets a chicken breast worth of, you know, you got to at least have a whole chicken breast. I ate spinach. Uh, spinach, that's good. 
Well, Popeye lied to me. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't fucking grow my arms big or whoop ass after I ate that spinach. Like her ass, huh? <laughs> yeah, she's my brother's problem. Yeah. So, of uh, the notionally independent Congo Free State on the grounds that it would be a free state uh, or a free trade area and buffer state between British and French spheres of influence. You know, she probably got up in the middle of the night and in the fridge. Probably, probably did, because when I left this morning, she was in bed asleep. That's okay. I went to my mom's and had a bowl of sugar-covered cornflakes. <laughs> my mom said, you know it's bad when you got to come to my house to eat. I'm like, because I know there's good food here, Mom. Dude, you need to, like, go to the store and, like, stock up some foods that, like, you know, non-perishables. Oh, bring them down in the basement with you. Oh, when I, when I start getting a paycheck, I'm going to start, like, bringing in food yeah hiding it so like i'm not laying there at nine o'clock in the night stomach grumbling because you know like trying to eat your pillow i had a salad for dinner now in the free state leopold exercised total control total personal control without much delegation to subordinates african chiefs played an important role in the administration by implementing government orders within their communities now throughout much of the much of its existence, however, free state presence in the territory that it claimed was patchy, with its few officials concentrated in a small, in in a number of small, and widely dispersed stations, which controlled only small amounts of hinterland. In 1900, there were just 3,000 white people in the Congo, only of whom only half were Belgian. <laughs> The colony was perpetually short of administrative staff and officials who numbered between 700 and 1,500 during that period. Hmm. Um, sir, we're going to need some more secretaries. Yeah. Now, in the early years of the colony, much of the administration's attention was focused on consolidating its control by fighting the African peoples on the colony's periphery who resisted colonial rule. These included the tribes around Kawango River in the southwest and the Ule in the northeast. Some of the violence of the period can be attributed to African groups using colonial support to settle scores with white administrators acting without state approval. <laughs> well, yeah, you come down with guns. Yeah. And they're, they're like, yeah, I know this is going to be like a stereotype, so forgive me, but I'm going to be like, okay, <coughs> You know, yeah, whatever. Uh-huh. But they're going to be like, hey, they got guns. These boomsticks can take out people. <laughs> you know what? We've been having problems with these people for a while now. <laughs> Let's go kill them. Now, ultimately, the state's policy towards its African subjects became dominated by the demands, which were made both by the state itself and by the concessionary companies for labor for the collection of wild produce in the territory. The system itself generated abuses. Now, this was said by Ruth Slade in 1962. And I've seen some of the pictures in the book. Yeah. Oh, God, Belgium was brutal. I mean, we'll get into it, but I mean, they would lob off hands and feet. Kind of like what they do today. <laughs> right, but I mean... You wonder where they get the pack. Get the practice from. But you know the thing is, is like they would they would watch they would have a father watch his daughter having that done. Jesus. 
Yeah. Well, they probably did that, you know. Oh, intimidation practice. Yeah, you know, right. Uh, genocides. Now, the Free State was intended, above all, to be profitable for its investors and Leopold in particular. Its finances were frequently precarious. Early reliance on ivory exports did not make as much money as hoped, and the colonial administration was frequently in debt, nearly defaulting on a number of occasions. A boom in demand for natural rubber in the 1890s, however, ended these problems as the colonial state was able to force Congolese males to work as forced labor collecting wild rubber, which could then be exported to Europe and North America. You've got to diversify. <laughs> you can't just do the, the ivory. Uh, and no. now they're learning that, oh, we got, you could do ivory and rubber, and pretty soon they could, might you know, figure out that they could do diamonds, too. Right, but rubber, at, you know, rubber was becoming a hot product in the 1890s. Yeah, because they were making you know, carriage tires and shit, probably. Well, that and uh, bottle, you know, cork top, uh, rubber tops for yeah, bottles. I don't know exactly what was made out of rubber back then, but... But, I mean, you know, hey, they could be going into baby nipples, you know, for bottles. Bottle nipples, yeah. Yeah. Uh, lotus shit, different things. Now, the rubber boom transformed what had been an unexceptional colony, colonial system before 1890 and led to a significant profits. Exports rose from 580 to 3,740 tons between 1895 and 1900. Now, in order to facilitate economic extraction from the colony, land was divided up under the so-called domain system in 1891. All vacant land, including forests and areas not under cultivation, was decreed to be uninhabited uninhabited and thus in the possession of the state leaving many of the Congo's resources especially rubber and ivory under direct colonial ownership God, wh where have I heard this before mm. where oh out west with the Indians yeah now concessions were allotted to private companies in the north the Societe Inverosi Invers Suave, what I know, I butchered that, was given 160,000 square kilometers, while the Anglo Belgian India Rubber Company was given a comparable territory in the south. The Compagnie du Katanga and Company de Grand, the de Grand Lac, were given smaller concessions in the south and east, respectively. Now, Leopold kept a large portion of territory under personal rule, known as the Crown Domain, of some 250,000 square kilometers, which was added to the territory he already controlled under the private domain. Oh, jeez. Well, you're the king, you know? I yeah. suppose, yeah. You want the best shit for you. You want the bigger shit for you. Thus, most economic exploitation of the Congolese interior was undertaken by Leopold and the major concessionaires. The system was extremely profitable, and ABIR made a turnover of over 100% of its initial stake in a single year. Well, shit. Now, the king made 70 million, 70 million Belgian francs of profit from the system between 1896 and 1905. 
Wow. The free state's concession system was soon copied by other colonial regimes, notably those in the neighboring French Congo. Because, mm. you know, this was before the French became cheese-eating surrender monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> Which I actually had a professor explain to me why the Fran- the French rolled over so quickly in World War II. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it was because they lost so many men in World War One. That they didn't want. They didn't want to repeat the process, so they're like, "Oh, Monsieur, we surrender!" Whoa, whoa! <laughs> oh man! Except for the French resistance. Yeah. Those guys did not care whatsoever. Now, with the majority of the free states' revenues derived from the export of rubber, a labor policy known by critics as the Red Rubber System was created to maximize its extraction. Now, labor was demanded by the administration as taxation. This created a slave society as companies became increasingly dependent on forcibly mobilizing Congolese labor for their collection of rubber. The state recruited a number of black officials known as capitas to organize local labor. However, The desire to maximize rubber collection, and hence the state's profits, meant that the centrally enforced demands were often set arbitrarily without considering the numbers or the welfare of the workers. Hmm. In the concessionary territories, the private companies which had purchased the concession from the Free State Administration were able to use virtually any measures they wished to increase production and profits without the state's interference. Well, we know what that happened. We know what happened to that here. Now, the lack of developed bureaucracy to oversee any commercial methods produced an atmosphere of informality throughout the state in regards to the operation of enterprise, which in turn facilitated abuses. Treatment of laborers, especially during the duration of service, was not regulated by law and instead left to the discretion of officials on the ground. <laughs> Oh, like I said, I've seen the pictures. I, yeah. I, I saw the resulting ends. ABIR and the Inversois were particularly noted for the harshness in which officials treated the Congolese workers. Now, the historian Gene Stengers described regions controlled by these two companies as a veritable as veritable hells on earth. Hmm. Now workers who refused to supply their labor were coerced with constraint and repression. Dissenters were beaten or whipped with the chicote. Hostages were taken to ensure prompt collection and punitive expeditions were sent to destroy villages which refused. Hmm. See, they kind of learned a little bit from America, but because they were Europeans, they had to knock it up a notch. Yeah. Now, the policy led to a collapse of Congolese economic and cultural life, as well as farming in some areas. Much of the enforcement of rubber production was the responsibility of the force publique, the colonial military. The force had originally been established in 1885 with white officers and NCOs and black soldiers 
and recruited from as far away as Zanzibar, Nigeria, and Liberia. In the Congo, it recruited from specific ethnic and social demographics. These included the Bengala, and this contributed to the spread of the Lingala language across the country, and freed slaves from the eastern Congo. The so-called Zappo-Zaps, from the Songhe ethnic group, were the most feared. Hmm. Reportedly cannibals, the Zappo-Zaps frequent. Reportedly cannibals, the Zappo-Zaps frequently abused their official position to raid the countryside for slaves. Now, by 1900, the Force Republic numbered 19,000 men. Wow. Now, the red rubber system emerged with the creation of the concession regime in 1891 and lasted until 1906 when the concession system was restricted. At its height, it was heavily localized in the, in the equator, Bandunhu, and Kasai regions. Now, a missionary points... Oh. Yeah, um... I saw this picture of a missionary pointing to the severed hand of a Congo villager. Mm -hmm. And the hands were symbols of the brutality that the Belgians were inflicting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I saw... You know, we've seen, like, what an amputated limb looks like. Yeah. These guys were taking machetes and just lobbing off hands and then, like, putting up as trophies. Hmm. Now, failure to meet the rubber collection quota was punishable by death. I, I'm thinking that's where they learned it when they were doing, you know, the, the Somali, you know, yeah. Rwanda genocides and everything from in the 90s and shit. I bet you that's where they learned it. It's generational, yeah. you know? Generational, yeah. I, I can see your thought process on that. Yeah, I could totally... Yeah, I mean... See, that's where they learned that behavior. You know, you're... Well, it's just... Year, you know, decades and decades of of um, occupation by a force that's brutal on the, the people that, you know, the indigenous, and the indigenous learn things that, you know... And then when it's time for them to go to war, what do they do, you know? Oh, yeah. Okay, so... Failure to meet the quotas was punishable by death. Meanwhile, the forced public were required to provide the hand of their victims as proof when they had shot and killed someone, as it was believed that they would otherwise use the munitions, which were imported from Europe at a considerable cost, for hunting. Hmm. As a consequence, the rubber quotas were in part paid off in chopped chopped off hands. Huh. Some, yeah, sometimes the hands were collected by the soldiers of the force public, sometimes by the villages themselves. There were even small wars where villagers attacked neighboring villages to gather hands since the rubber quotas were too unrealistic to fill. Jesus. A Catholic priest quotes a man, Suwambe, speaking of the hated state official, Leon Fizet, Fives, who ran a strict, who ran a district along the river 500 kilometers north of Stanley Pool. 
All blacks saw this man as the devil of the equator. From all the bodies killed in the field, you had to cut off the hands. He wanted to see the number of hands cut off by each soldier who had to bring them in baskets. A village which refused to provide rubber would be completely swept clean. As a young man, I saw soldier Molihi, then guarding the village of Boyeka, take a net, put ten arrested natives in it, attach big stones to the net, and make it tumble into the river. Rubber causes these torments. That's why we no longer want to hear its name spoken. Soldiers made young men kill or rape their own mothers and sisters. Holy shit. Yeah. Now one junior officer described a raid to punish a village that had protested. The officer in command ordered us to cut off the heads of the men and hang them on the village palisades and to hang the women and the children on the palisades in the form of a cross. After seeing a Congolese person killed for the first time, a Danish missionary wrote, The soldiers said, Don't take this to heart so much. They kill us if we don't bring the rubber. The commissioner has promised us if we have plenty for hands, he will shorten our service. In, in Forbath's words, the baskets of severed hands sat down at the feet of the European post commanders became the symbol of the Congo Free State. The collection of hands became an end in itself. Forced public soldiers brought them to the stations in place of rubber. They even went out to harvest them instead of rubber. That became a sort of currency. They came to be used to make up for shortfalls in rubber quotas to replace the people who were demanded for, for, for the forced labor gangs and the forced public soldiers who were paid their bonuses on the basis of how many hands they collected. So there was one picture that I, I saw in the book. It was a father. Yeah. And he was looking at the hands and the foot of his daughter. Hmm. And now his daughter was five. Holy shit. And this was a punishment because he didn't bring in enough rubber. Man. Now, in theory, each right hand proved a killing. In practice, to save ammunition, soldiers sometimes cheated by simply cutting off the hand and leaving the victim to live or die. Several survivors later said that they had lived through a massacre by acting dead, not moving even when their hands were severed, and waiting until the soldiers left before seeking help. In some instances, a soldier could shorten his service term by bringing, in, by bringing more hands than the other soldiers, which led to widespread mutilations and dismemberment. Leopold II reportedly disapproved of dismemberment because it harmed his economic interests. He was quoted as saying, Cut off hands that, that's idiotic. I'd cut off all the rest of them, but not the hands. That's the one thing I need in the Congo. Hmm. Now, one practice used to force workers to collect rubber included taking women and family members hostage. ABR, ABIR agents would imprison the chief of any village who fell behind its quota. In July of 1902, one post record, recorded that it held 44 chiefs in prison. 
These prisons were in poor condition, and the posts at the Bangadanga and Mampampo each recorded death rates of 3 to 10 prisoners per day in 1899. Well, I mean, th yeah, 3 to 10 a day? You know, that's, that's some wicked shit. Hmm. But the prisons were, you know, not hygienically safe for the prison. Yeah, I would you know. think not at all. Oh, no. Prisons are not supposed to be happy places. Well, yeah. Well, unless you unless you go to Club Fed. Yeah, exactly. Unless you have enough, unless you have enough money to go. I mean, I saw pictures of Blagojevich now. Except, like, Epstein. Well, right. Because <laughs> he, like, didn't go to a very good place. No, but we were. I was watching uh, news recently. But that wasn't a federal penitentiary no. either. No, I. They showed pictures of uh, our former governor Rod Blagojevich. Yeah. That dude is ripped. Lego man hair model, Rod Blagojevich. Yeah, I mean, they showed him walking the yard, and he he put on some muscle. Rod don't look like he got body fat anymore. It's like he's he's a prison working out. What an idiot! I hate him. So persons with records of resisting the ABIR were deported to forced labor camps. There were at least three such camps, one at Lyrico, one on the upper Marginal River, and one in the upper Lapori River. Now aside from rubber collection, violence in the Free State chiefly occurred in connection with wars and rebellions. Native states, notably Missouri's Yeke Kingdom and the Zandi Federation, and the Swahili-speaking territory in the Eastern Congo under Tipu Tip. Tipu Tip. <laughs> hey man, my name's Tipu Tip. Yeah. I run this bitch. Now they refused to recognize colonial authority and were defeated by the force Polik with great brutality during the Congo Arab War. In 1895, the military mutiny broke out among the Bataletta in the Kasai, leading to a four-year insurgency. The conflict was part particularly brutal and caused a great number of casualties. Now, with the presence of the rubber companies, such as ABIR, exasperated the effect of natural diseases such as famine and disease, or disaster, sorry. Mm -hmm. Now, the ABIR tax collection system forced men out of the villages to collect rubber, which meant that there were no labor available to clear new fields for planting. Now, this in turn meant that the women had to continue to plant worn-out fields, resulting in lower yields, and a problem aggravated by company centuries stealing crops and farm animals. <laughs> Shit. The post had... Bonginda experienced a famine in 1899 and 1900. Missionaries recorded a terrible famine across the ABIR's concession. So Leopold sanctioned the creation of child colonies in which orphaned Congolese would be kidnapped and sent to schools operated by Catholic missionaries in which they would learn to work or be soldiers. And if there were priests around, probably peddled by the priest. <laughs> now, these were the only schools funded by the state. 
More than 50% of the children sent to the schools died of disease. Shit. Oh, Jesus. A thousand more died in the forced marches into the colonies. Jesus Christ. In one such march, 108 boys were sent over to a mission school, and only 62 survived, eight of whom died a week later. Jeez. Yeah. Now, the indigenous Congolese were not the only ones put to work by the Free State. 400 and, or 540 Chinese laborers were imported to work on the railways in the Congo. However, three of them, 300 of them would die or leave their post. Jeez. It's got to be bad the Chinese are going to leave. I swear, man. I mean, we put the Chinese through hell building our own railroad. No and they stayed. <clears throat> of course, they were the only ones who figured out how to work gunpowder, so we needed them. Yeah. You're what? Well, yeah, uh, they invented gunpowder. Right, like but uh, I watched Hell on Wheels on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't watch it when it was on A&E, so I watched it yeah. when it came on Netflix. And what the Chinese were doing with, you know, the, to like tunnel through the mountains and stuff, mm-hmm. man. I don't think we could have made it across the continent without their help. Really? Yeah, another show, if you ever get a chance to see it, Spielberg's Into the West. Yeah. He does like this six-part miniseries. It's like two hours long. Yeah, I've seen... Yeah, there... I haven't seen it, but I know what you're talking about. There's a section of it where they do talk about the Continental Railroad. Mm -hmm. It's like towards, towards like chapter five. Yeah. And the Chinese on that was helping uh, tunnel through mountains. All right. So, uh, Caribbean peoples and people from other African countries were also imported to work on the railway, in which 3,600 would die in the first two years of construction from railroad accidents, lack of shelter, flogging, hunger, and disease. Right. Okay. So, uh, Neil Atchison wrote, I suggest that it is impossible to separate deaths caused by massacre and starvation from those due to the pandemic of sleeping sickness, which decimated Central Africa at the time. So, <laughs> right, sorry, I was sending my brother a message. You're not reading, you bastard. Right. Well, no, I think my brother was joking around with me last night. Mm-hmm. I came up for dinner. He's like, do you lose the job yet? Lose the job? Yeah. How many days have you worked? I haven't even been on the floor yet. I've been doing computer training. Oh, shit. Okay, now historians generally agree that a dramatic reduction in the overall size of the Congolese population occurred during the two decades of the free state rule in the Congo. It is argued that the reduction in the Congo was atypical and could be attributed to the direct and indirect effects of colonial rule, including disease and falling birth rate. Hmm. 
Now, historian Adam Hoschild, he's the one that he's his book is the one I had to read for class. Yeah. Argued that the dramatic fall in the free state population was the result of a combination of murder, starvation, exhaustion, and exposure, disease, and a plummeting birth rate. Sleeping sickness was also a major cause of fatality at the time. Opponents of Leopold's rule stated real opponents of Leopold's rule stated, however, that the administration itself was to be considered responsible for the spreading of the epidemic. Although it is impossible to be sure in the absence of records, violence and murder represented only a portion of, of the total. In a local study of the Cuba and Kete peoples, the historian Jan Van Sina estimated that violence accounted for the deaths of less than 5% of the population. Mm. The centuries introduced gross and wholesale immorality, broke up family life, and spread disease throughout the land. Formerly, native conditions put restrictions on the spread of disease and localized it to small areas, but the black Congo soldiers, moving higher and thither to districts far from their wives and homes, took the women they wanted and ignored native institutions' rights and customs. Hmm. Now, diseases imported by Arab traders, European colonists, and African porters ravaged the Congolese population and greatly exceeded the numbers killed by violence. Smallpox, sleeping sickness, amoebic dysentery, venereal diseases, especially... Sleeping sickness is caused by a bug. Yeah. Venereal diseases, especially our favorites, syphilis and gonorrhea, the (laughs) big two. Yeah. And swine influenza were particularly severe. Lawyer Raphael Lemkin, the coiner of the term genocide, attributed the quick spread of disease in the Congo to the indigenous soldiers employed by the Belgians, who moved across the country and had sex with women in many different places, thus spreading localized outbreaks across larger areas. Well, you know it happens. All these people dying... It's like, how many were left? I mean... Right. Like, shit. Now, sleeping sickness in particular was an epidemic in large areas of the Congo and had a high mortality rate. In 1901 alone, it is estimated that as many as 500,000 Congolese died from the sleeping sickness. Vancina estimated that 5% of the Congolese population perished from swine influenza. In areas in which dysentery became endemic, between 30 and 60% of the population could die. Vancina also pointed to the effects of malnutrition and food shortages in reducing immunity to new diseases. The disruption of African rural populations may have helped to spread diseases further. Nevertheless, historian Roger Anstey wrote that a strong strain of local oral tradition holds the rubber policy to have been a greater cause of death and depopulation than either the scourge of sleeping sickness or the periodic ravages of smallpox. Mm. It's like gold fever, you know. 
Look at look at what happened out west when we when gold was discovered. Yeah. And what happened to native populations out there? Yeah, but in Africa, it's it's ivory and rubber and oil and, and gold diamonds and, and diamond. Gold. You're right. Every time something new is found in Africa, the indigenous people suffer. Yep. They're doing it now. The diamonds, you know, mm-hmm. fuck. And diamonds are intrinsic, intrinsically worthless. They are not worth fucking shit. And people are idiots. They're all like, well, I'm going to go buy, you know, you're going to spend three months' salary on fucking diamonds. Diamonds aren't worth anything. Have you ever tried to sell back a diamond? They don't want it. They don't want to give it to you. You know why? Because they're telling, they're they're telling everybody that they're precious stones and that they're rare and they're not rare. They have millions and billions of dollars that they have held back. Why? Because if all the diamonds that they had hidden or in vaults were uh, out on the open market, they would be worth nothing. You know? Right. <laughs> you could line your freak, the bottom of your swimming pool with the motherfuckers. You know? It's like, Jesus, you know? It is also widely believed that the birth rates fell during the period, too, meaning that the growth rate of the population fell relative to the natural death rate. The Sina, however, notes that pre-colonial societies had high birth and death rates, leading to a great deal of natural population fluctuations over time. Among the Cuba, the period 1880 to 1900 was actually one of population expansion. A reduction of the population of the Congo is noted by all who have compared the country at the beginning of Leopold's control with the beginning of the Belgian state ruled in 1908, but estimates of the death toll vary considerably. Estimates of some contemporary observers suggest that the population decreased by half during this period. According to Edmund D. Morrill, the Congo Free State counted 20 million souls. Other estimates of the size of the overall population declined. Uh, Population declined on a range between 2 and 13 million. Atchison cites an estimate by Roger Casement of the population fall of 3 million, although he notes that it is almost certainly an underestimate or as underestimate. Now, Peter Forbath gave a figure of at least 5 million deaths, while John Gunther also supports a 5 million figure as a minimum death estimate and posits 8 million as the maximum. Lincoln posited that 75% of the population was killed. Damn. In absence of a census providing even an initial idea of the size of the population of the region at the inception of the Free State, the first census was taken in 1924, it is impossible to quantify population changes in the period. But despite this, Forbath more recently claimed the losses were at least 5 million. Adam Hosschild and Jan Vecina used the number 10 million. Hosschild cites several recent independent lines of investigation by anthropologists Jane Vecina and others that examine local sources like police records, religious scrolls, oral traditions, genealogies, and personal diaries, which generally agree with the assessment of the 1919 Belgian Government Commission, 
Roughly half the population perished during the Free State period. Since the first official census by the Belgian authorities in 1924 put the population at about 10 million, these various approaches suggest a rough estimate of the total of 10 million dead. Jane Vicenia returned to the issue of quantifying the total population decline and revised his earlier position, and he included that the Cuba population, one of the many in the Congo, was rising during the first two decades of Leopold's rule and declined by 25% from 1900 to 1919, mainly due to sickness. Others argue a decrease of 20% over the first 40 years of colonial rule, which would put it up to the 1924 census. According to historian Isidore Nawali is... whatever. Yeah. <laughs> 13 million died. However, no verifiable records exist. Of course not. Well, no, and, and that's the thing. we got to speculate on all of this. Which makes it, which makes it hard. Now, Lewis and Stenger state that population figures at the start of Leopold's control are only wild guesses, while calling E. D. Morell's attempts and others at coming to a figure for population losses, but figments of the imagination. However, authors that point out the lack. Of reliable demographic data are questioned by others calling the former minimalist and agnostics. Now since the first census of the Congolese population was made in 1924, there is a consensus among historians that a precise estimate of the population fall or the number of deaths is impossible. Now, eventually, growing scrutiny of Leopold's regime led to a popular campaign movement centered in the United Kingdom and the United States to force Leopold to renounce his ownership of the Congo. In many cases, the campaigns based their information on reports from British and Swedish missionaries working in the Congo. Hmm. The first international protest occurred in 1890 when George Washington Williams, an American, published an open letter to Leopold about abuses he had witnessed. Uh-oh. Yeah, no shit. You didn't silence him. <laughs> now, in a letter to the United States Secretary of State, he described conditions in the Congo as crimes against humanity, thus coining the phrase, which will later become key language in international law. Public interest in the abuses in the Congo Free State grew sharply from 1895, when the Stokes Affair and reports of multi-mutilations reached Europe and American public, which began to discuss the Congo question. There's the second coining. The, yeah. the first one was genocide. Genocide, now crimes crime against, against humanity. Yeah. And this is all, like, right within... So a, you can imagine how bad it was. Oh, right. You're coining... You're coining phrases, phrases. That, that's going to be used by later people. Now, to appease public opinion, Leopold instigated a commission for the protection of natives, composed of foreign missionaries, but made few serious efforts at substantive reform. 
In the United Kingdom, the campaign was led by the activist and pamphleteer E.D. Morrill after 1900, whose book, Red Rubber, published in 1906, reached a mass audience. Mm. Notable members of the campaign included the novelist and my family member, allegedly, Mark Twain. There's <laughs> Your a fam- family member. There's a, there's a story in my family that on my mother's side, someone on my grandfather's side were distantly related to Mark Twain. Well, when you get your... Well, when I get my ancestry your test ancestry back. ancestry thing back. I can't wait. I didn't know you were going to do that. My sister gave it to me as a Christmas present. No shit. Yeah. That's awesome, Yeah. Dude. Dawn did it because... I'm going to do that as soon as the tax money... Uh, Dawn did it, t- and she found out that there's some German in the family. Mm-hmm. She's trying to figure out where. Yeah. And I said, well, some of mine will be different because I have a different dad. Mm-hmm. And but she wants to see how, like, how close I am with her. I'm like, we'll it'll be on mom's side, so it'll be a small, yeah, percentage. But I'm kind of curious for, on my father's side, where my grandpa and my grandma come from. Yeah, I know on my grandfather's side what, what, we're Irish. So what's on your mom's side then? Since no, you're Norwegian, sister. we were told Norwegian and English. Well, what about the ancestry thing? Oh God, she's she's did. got like uh, she's definitely. You have the same mom, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, so, then, so there's Norwegian. Yeah. Um, Norwegian. I think maybe some French. Because hmm. she's actually did the family tree on mom's side. Well, no, what the ancestry one. Yeah. Well, say. she's she started building the family tree on ancestry.com. They did. They did a DNA thing on the. Right. She she did the Ancestry DNA kit. Um, and she actually found a, a Klonowski family member. Really? Yeah. Where at? Uh, here in the States. Hmm. So they're trying to figure out who is related to who. Yeah. Because my stepdad never talked about his family. Never. We don't know aunts, uncles, cousins, nothing. He never really? talked about them. Hmm. And on the Fenton side of my family, we know, you know, 1847, we came over from Ireland. We can go back so far in Ireland. Oh. Yeah, that's where I'm more interested in knowing. It's like my Irish side. Yeah. So, you got your mom's side back then. Yeah. And it's just Norwegian and French? Uh, some Norwegian. She found German, so we're trying to figure out where the German came so German, from. So German, Norwegian, and French. I mean, I need to. I mean, I just sent it in a couple of weeks ago, and I got the Ancestry DNA app on the phone mm-hmm. that lets me know what's. Uh, uh, they haven't received it yet. Oh, okay. But yeah, there's a story on my mom's side that we're related to Mark Twain, which kind of explains the storytelling a little bit. Hmm. Okay, Mark Twain, Joseph Conrad, and Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh, Sherlock Holmes. As well as Belgian socialists such as Emile Vandervelde. Now, in May of 1803, a debate in the British House of Commons led to the passing of a resolution in condemnation of the Congo Free State. A few days later, the British consul in the town of Boma 
Roger Casement began touring the Congo to investigate the true extent of the abuses. He delivered his report in December, and a revised version was forwarded to the Free State Authorities in February 1904. Mm. Now, in an attempt to prevent the Congo's labor force and or to preserve the labor force and stifle British criticism, Leopold promoted attempts to combat disease to give the impression that he cared about the welfare of the Congolese and invited experts from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine to assist. Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine? Yeah. Liverpool, England. Liverpool, England. Tropical Medicine. Well, since Britain did a lot of, you know, they... Um, <laughs> I just... It's, just it's, it's weird, weird right? It's in Liverpool, England. Well, <laughs> England had colonies in in the Bahamas, well, so yeah, there's a tropical just, climate. It's just weird. It, it's weird that yeah, <laughs> Britain is the leading expert on tropical diseases. Yeah. It's like having a school about deserts in Antarctica or something. <laughs> you know? It's like uh, that's not gonna work. There's like two penguins up there going. Yeah, we know everything about it. Yeah. Lots of sand. Lots of sand. Cactus. Now, free Although state... I've never actually seen a cactus. Right. <laughs> we are theorizing about these cactus. <laughs> now, free state officials also defended themselves against allegations that exploitative policies were causing severe population decline in the Congo by attributing the losses to smallpox and sleeping sickness. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, smallpox isn't going to make you lose a hand there, Jojo. Now, campaigning groups such as the Congo Reform Association did not oppose colonialism and instead sought to end the excesses of the Free State by encouraging Belgium to annex the colony officially. This would avoid damaging the delicate balance of power between France and Britain on the continent. Hmm. While supporters of the Free State regime attempted to argue against claims of atrocities, a commission of inquiry appointed by the regime in 1904 confirmed the stories of atrocities and pressure on the Belgian government increased. Well, well, well. In 1908, as a direct result of this campaign, Belgium formally annexed the territory, creating the Belgian Congo. Conditions for the indigenous population improved dramatically, with the suppression of forced labor, although many officials who had formerly worked for the Free State were retained in their post long after annexation. Great. Yeah. Instead of mandating labor for colonial enterprises directly, the Belgian administration used a coercive tax that deliberately pressured Congolese to find work with European employers to produce the necessary funds to make the payments. For some time after the end of the Free State, the Congolese were also required to provide a certain number of days of service per year for infrastructure projects. In spite of these measures, the legacy of the population decline of Leopold's reign left the colonial government with a severe labor shortage, and it often had to resort to mass migrations to provide workers to emerging businesses. Neither the Belgian monarchy nor the Belgian state has ever apologized for these atrocities. And of that, course they haven't. Well, no. Well, and this, I came across this because uh, I recently saw 
uh, a message on Facebook that uh, Ben Affleck is going to turn this story into a movie. Huh. So I, I I wonder if he's you know going off of uh, Adam Hothschild's book King Leopold's Ghost, mm. which he would have bought he would have had to buy the rights to the book to develop it into a screenplay. Yeah. But you know because uh, I I sent a message to my uh, professor we're friends on Facebook yeah. about this. And he's like keep me informed on developments of this because I was like this could be something you could use in uh. World hundred, world history, fifteen hundred till now. Yeah. Along with the book. And I still have, I still kept the book. I didn't want to lose it. Cause uh, I thought it was a good book. I got to go back and read it because I didn't read it for class. Uh, yeah. That semester I had so much to read. I was just like, eh, I could fake it. And in that class, I really didn't have to provide too much for um, for uh, discussion purposes. Yeah. Because I had the Civil War class right before it. So I was kind of tired out from leading discussions in the Civil War class. Yeah. <laughs> so I just let everyone else kind of fill in. Yeah, I was like, oh, fuck it, they could do it. I got a... I gotta send an email to my professor, let him know, uh, have him remind me when the uh, when the students this year, um, how was it, Defender uh, Theses. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we take a day in April and the graduating historians defend their thesis in front of a board. Huh. I had to do it. Yeah. Nervous as hell, but I did it. Hey, you passed, right? Well, I passed with an A. Yeah. Yeah, after... Well, I'm going to present the thesis one day on the show when we talk about James Longstreet. Yeah. I'm not going to do the whole thesis. I'm going to, you know... Yeah. Edit out parts because I think there's other parts within the thesis that can be spun into their own episodes. You were stuck on that shit, aren't you? I mean, I, I'm sorry. I love the Civil War. <laughs> I, I just... I just had to go to the Civil War community a couple weeks ago to ask about... Because I was having problems trying to write Unreconstructed. Uh-huh. And I went to them, I'm like, what's the best way to handle this? Because I get like six episodes, six scripts in. I don't like the direction. I tear it apart. So basically, what I'm like taking uh, like an incident. And I'm starting with the ending of it. I'm going to show you the steps that led to that decision or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> also, you know, I my counselor says I should write more, so yeah, gotta do what the counselor says. But that is the Belgian Congo. Well, hell, <laughs> and King Leopold's uh, brutality. Brutality. But I, I, I would like to see the movie Ben Affleck makes out of this. Yeah, it'd be, I think it'd be a good one. I mean, I've seen some of the movies he's directed. He's, he's a good director. There's a lot... There's actors that do... I think so. Actors who go into directing usually do their best work well, behind I'm the camera. Well, I'm just saying anything that... Uh, there are actors out there that, like, no matter what they do, I'll see it. Right. nine times out of ten, it's good. Yeah. 
I mean, there's some some actors who became directors. Like I like their Pitt. work. I mean, Brad Pitt is one of those actors that are rarely in a bad movie. Yeah. Except the last one was a stink fest. Which? Oh, Once Upon Ad a Time Astra. in Hollywood. No. Oh, Ad that Astra. was good. I haven't seen that Once one. Upon, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I heard it was good. I haven't it, seen it. It's it's fiction, of course. Yeah. But it's entertaining as hell. I haven't um, seen it. I, I should. Ad Astra. Yeah. Skip it. Okay. It's a fucking. It's two hours. Oh man, it. It's basically. Think about this. You have problems with your father, right? Yeah. Okay. You go to a psychiatrist, and you have a two-hour session, right? Yeah. Add that with space. Ooh. You know? And a, and a few weird things happen. It's it's stupid. It's like a... It's like... Oh, jeez. Right. I, when, it, when it was over, I literally felt like... I had gotten out of therapy. Like, for dad... With daddy issues or something. Right. Like a guy having daddy dad issues, you know? Yeah. Because basically it's... The, the father goes on a deep space mission... When the kid's like young, and then like comes back when he's older. No, 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 he doesn't even come back. He fucking so so that's the new. Uh, I'm going out for cigarettes. No, yeah, basically, I'm going to space. <laughs> well, like what is like thirty years later, uh, Brad Pitt's character grows up and he's an astronaut too, and he goes into deep space because, um. They found something wrong with his father, what his father was doing out there, or whatever, and it might threaten the earth or something. I don't know, see how that happened. I must have not been paying attention too much. But I didn't see how it happened, how that was, how that all clicked into it. Oh, uh, before we But went. anyway, he goes all the way out there and. <sighs> it's stupid because he goes all the way out there to let go of his father. And then he lets go of his father and comes back to Earth, and now he's well adjusted. I'm like... Before we wrap it up, you want to hear something funny? What? Cracker Barrel, uh, these job search ads. I, oh, ads yeah. I, Cracker Barrel's interested in me. <laughs> I bet you they are. <laughs> and, well, guess what? That's a big... You negatory. say you want to wash dishes, huh? Oh, God, no. <laughs> I told my brother I would go back if absolutely necessary. And you he's got like, the dish pan hands they're looking for. And he's like, you Dude, don't, do not go back. No. I, I Dude, told him I, the, the shit that you, with the depression and shit, if you went back, if you seriously If I went back to job, any restaurant. No, I, no, if, not just any restaurant, but oh. Cracker Barrel. If you went back to that place and did what you were doing before, I think you would probably... I would become a subject on Killer's Cults and Nut Jobs. Yeah, or you would probably off yourself. That's like a step backwards in the biggest freaking way. Well, I told my brother I would go back to restaurants if I absolutely have to. But he's well, like, yeah, if you, a restaurant, a restaurant, a right. restaurant. Oh God, they won't take me back but anyway. Not the barrel. You know not how much bull in barrel. First of all, you know how much bullshit I would. I would kick your ass if you went back to the barrel. I would be like, you guys can't afford me. What do you mean? No, you can't afford me. No shit. 
Yeah, you could go back to the barrel if they end up paying you like. I don't even know what would be per hour uh, enough to go back there. Starting off was like eight twenty-five, eight fifty. Yeah, well, that's definitely not worth it. Oh no, I'd be. I'd tell them you, you got to pay me more than what you're paying your highest-paid dishwasher right now. Oh, eight thirty-five. Okay. No. <laughs> and I don't close, and I don't do weekends. Yeah. So here's my left nut. Suckle on it. I would tell them. If if they were seriously serious about you know because because how long were you there? I was there almost four years. Yeah, there you go. I would tell you know you know how uh, by twenty twenty five, Illinois yeah. uh, minimum wage is supposed to be fifteen bucks an hour. I would tell them fifteen bucks an hour now. Yeah, I'd be like they're gonna have to pay it sooner or later. May as well start paying you. Yes, that, you now. <laughs> that would make it you know worth it. All right. Uh, Until it actually right. got changed. Uh, we're on Anchor, all major podcasting apps, Apple Podcasts. Podcast. Brian, do your job, buddy. Do your job. And for the history, or for, I almost said the history bastards. God. For the smart-ass historian, I'm Scotty J. I'm Jeff. Catch you later, folks. Bye. This concludes our broadcast day. Good night, and God bless you.